Uh, Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and we will be in verse 33. And once you are there, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33. It says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. The title of our study tonight is An Incompatible Gospel. An Incompatible Gospel. And in this section of text, Jesus continues a conversation that he has been having thus far with the Pharisees. It's not a disagreement that's necessarily linked in time with the previous events, but it's linked in topic to the events that we saw and studied last week. Remember last week, I just want to point your attention to those verses. You notice the Pharisees in verse 30 of chapter 5 grumbling at the disciples of Jesus, asking him why he eats and drinks with tax collectors and with sinners. And here in this text, we see that the chief complaint begins as a complaint about his uh, regular, it seems to be, eating and drinking with, uh, with feasting and with abundance, whereas the Pharisees' lifestyle is marked by something different. And so chronologically, these events aren't necessarily linked, but they're most likely linked in Luke's gospel by idea. They're linked in terms of theme and in terms of subject matter to the preceding section. But in this section, the question goes beyond what the previous section dealt with. Remember last week, it dealt with uh, us understanding who Jesus's mission is for and what he comes on this earth to accomplish. In this section, we're exploring specifically Jesus's illustration in his address on what exactly that whole mission entails on his part. We can sum it up uh, with these four points, and these are the ones we're going to use as we move through this text together. We can sum it up first and foremost by a new covenant. A new covenant. Secondly, you're going to see that that new covenant requires a new garment. Not only does it require a new garment, but you're going to see thirdly that it requires a new spirit. And then fourth and finally, we're going to see that that new spirit and that new garment are going to be put on a new creation. So this gospel truth, I, I titled this an incompatible gospel because Jesus is going to make crystal clear something at the end that I want to put in front of you in the beginning, which is that the gospel that Jesus presents is one that doesn't play nice with other competing gospel messages. It doesn't share the room or share the floor with a whole host of ways unto salvation. And as we move through this text tonight, I want you to keep your eye on that idea because that's going to be one of the main driving things that Jesus is putting home to the Pharisees. So if you look with me in verse 33, we're going to get into this text and hopefully, with time allowing, get through all of the verses. 
It says, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. The essential accusation that the Pharisees now levied against Jesus, that is found in verse 33, is one that says, Jesus, why are you so unlike all of the other religious prophets that have come before you? The Pharisees tend to view themselves as a prophetic group. And while we're not told exactly in Luke's gospel who this they are, we're left to imply based on context that it's likely the Pharisees that bring up these charges. It is also likely some of the disciples of John, John the Baptist, who are taking part in this questioning of Jesus. Now, that's not to say that the disciples of John are being unfaithful, but they are seeking to understand one thing which Jesus is making very confusing for the religious leaders of his day, which is why he is so different from the other prophets who've come before him. Remember, John the Baptist came as a voice crying out in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. And so when Jesus comes on the scene also as a prophet, one of the things the Pharisees are trying to understand is if him and John share the same message, why is it that their practice of religion looks so vastly different? And they're going to specifically hone in on the fasting and the praying because from their vantage point, in this case, they agree with John. Now, they don't agree with John because they agreed with his theology. If you'll remember, when we looked at John's preaching towards the Pharisees, they listen, but they don't really respond to his call. Well, the, the reason they're picking up on this difference is because they're just looking for almost anything to pin against Jesus. He looks different from their tradition in this way, and so they're going to call out that difference that they see in the text. And so the difference is very simple. They say, we and the disciples of John fast often, and we pray. And so do, and so did John's disciples, and as was likely also the practice of John, because remember, his disciples would have followed his pattern. And they said, but yours eat and drink. Now that's not just an accusation of Jesus' disciples, that's also an accusation against Jesus, because the disciples merely do what Jesus tells them to do, and they merely model what Jesus models for them. And so in this text, there's an accusation towards his disciples, but really the accusation is aimed at Jesus, and they are demanding an explanation, trying to make sense of these differences that they see in the text. Now, if you look at the Old Covenant, if you were to survey the, the Torah, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you're going to try to put together what it looks like for a, a pious Jewish person to fast, you could really only come up with one fast day that is required by the law. There's a great many days on which Jewish people might have fasted. There's a great many temporary fasts that happen. For example, uh, at times of particular hardship, the Jewish people will all fast and lament together. But there's only one fast during the calendar year that is required of a Jewish person. The fast on the Day of Atonement is the fast that all Jewish people were to take in as a means of them longing for the deliverance of Yahweh for their sins. Remember, on the Day of Atonement, the Jewish people are celebrating the fact or making atonement for the sins of the entire nation, those sins that they are aware of as well as the sins that they are unaware of. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies after washing and purifying himself for a period of time. And this was the day for the Jewish people. The Day of Atonement was the day that kind of marked the rest of their calendar year. And that is really the only day in the whole Old Testament calendar that the Jewish people are specifically commanded to fast on. So then the question that you have when you get to this text is where do the Pharisees come up with this idea that they must fast and pray, as, and quote on their words, often? 
And by often, they're implying to Jesus that he knows what they're referring to, but since we're so far removed from the text, we need to understand what that word means. Often for them means two times a week. Often for them would mean twice a week, usually uh, separated by a few days, so you're kind of fasting at a regular interval throughout the week. Obviously, they would not fast on their Sabbath day, but they do fast regularly. And the question is, where do they get those ideas from? I think it's an often misunderstood thing from our vantage point looking at them. We look at them and see them as particularly uh, wooden people, particularly stubborn people. But something you need to know about the heart posture of the Pharisees is they are trying to seek salvation. They are trying to pursue and obey the laws of God. Their problem is that they obey as a first priority the laws of men, and they hold other people to those same standards. Where they get this idea of fasting twice a week is by a collective group of people called the rabbis. And the rabbis come up with a long tradition of interpreting the Old Testament. And during the gap in time between the close of your Old Testament scriptures, the last book in your Bible, and the first book that we have, which is Matthew, between that period of time, roughly 400 years, you have this tradition of the rabbis teaching other faithful Jewish people how they ought to pursue God, how they ought to love God, and how they ought to practice their Jewish religion to be faithful to Yahweh. Remember, during that time, there's gaps in their ability to sacrifice at the temple because for a long time, that temple is destroyed. It's really only right before Jesus comes back that the temple is rebuilt and they can resume those kinds of sacrifices. So what are they as faithful Jewish people to do to show their allegiance to God? One of the things that they came up with in this, uh, these texts, they're known as the, the Mishnah and the Talmud. These two texts help us to understand what Jewish thought was at the time. And in these texts, you get where they come up with fasting twice a week. Now, the problem is they hold all people to this standard as if it is equal to the commands of God that they're trying to interpret. So they're not going off the Old Testament text. They're going off of their interpretation of the Old Testament text. And they're calling Jesus into question because he doesn't practice their tradition. And that's what they're calling into question. And that sets the scene for the response that Jesus is about to give them. It says in verse 34, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? It's an obvious question, right? Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? We are not too far removed in our culture from understanding this, so we don't have to explain their practice of wedding too much. But one of the things that comes right off the page is it would be strange if you were to sit down at a wedding, you're celebrating a wedding feast, and the first thing that happens is all the people who are participating in the bridal party were saying, no, we're not celebrating tonight, we're all fasting. They're not going to eat the food, they're not going to enjoy the dessert, they're not going to enjoy the, the many dishes that are served, they're not going to have the appetizers, they're not going to enjoy the spoils of this feast. That would be a strange thing to happen. That would be weird even for our culture today, and it would have been very weird for a Jewish culture because their weddings were much more extravagant than ours, they were much more in-depth than ours were, or are. And it, so even for us, we can understand how weird that is. And so the, the question doesn't really need to be answered. Jesus asks a question that has an answer. Would you ask the wedding guests to fast while the bridegroom is with them? The answer obviously is no, you wouldn't. And then he says something interesting. He says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. The question is, what is Jesus talking about, about the bridegroom being with them and then not being with them? Well, in scripture, there's this picture of what it looks like for Christ 
to follow and love the church. Christ pursues the church. If you look at Ephesians, for example, Paul talks about how the model of a husband and a wife in their marriage covenant relationship is like Christ pursuing the church, Christ pursuing his bride. And Christ in that example is the husband. But this isn't something that has come up new with Paul. We have to actually look at Isaiah 54 verse 5 to see that. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah 54. So this is going to be starting in verse 5 of Isaiah 54. It says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This text is from Isaiah prophesying about the new eternal covenant that is going to be put forth in front of the people of Israel. And in this new covenant, God is put forth not primarily as a Lord, but primarily as a husband. And this isn't imagery that is put forth by Isaiah exclusively. This kind of imagery is repeated in Ezekiel's prophecies. It's repeated almost the entire prophecy of Hosea's ministry is this picture of the the husband in pursuit of his wayward bride. And so when Jesus is talking about the wedding guests not being asked to fast while the bridegroom is with them, it's obvious what he's implying. He's implying that the bridegroom of these wedding guests is present among them and that at some point in the future, that bridegroom is going to depart. Well, who is the bridegroom? Who is the groom in this text? It is God. God is the one who goes before the people to love them and to care for them and to seek after them. And so when God is the one who's going to do this in Isaiah's prophecy, what's Jesus implying when he says, my disciples don't fast because the groom is with them? He's saying he is the groom. He's saying that he is this God who's going to husband his people and pursue them. And he's saying that they don't fast, not because fasting is wrong, but because right now is not an appropriate season for fasting. He tells them that fasting isn't bad. In fact, he says that at some point in the future, you will have the opportunity once again to fast because the bridegroom doesn't stay with his people forever. The bridegroom will eventually be taken away. And in those days when the bridegroom is removed from his people, his people will fast. They will fast out of a natural response for the longing of wanting to be with the groom. They will fast as a response that is out of their nature, longing for some future moment when the groom will once again return to them. And what's interesting about the Pharisees' practice of fasting is like many of their religious practices, they practice these things forgetting the purpose for which they do them. Fasting for a Jewish person, remember, is on the Day of Atonement. That's when it's commanded. And on the Day of Atonement, what they are longing for is the atonement that God is going to make for the sins of the people. That's why they fast. And so the Pharisees continue this practice. They actually pick up the frequency, anticipating the longing of the Messiah coming. And then when the Messiah comes in their midst, they completely miss him and they continue to practice fasting, not knowing 
that their fasting and their prayers have been answered and the answer is in front of them. Jesus bears with him a new time in salvation history where there's no longer longing for salvation to come. Salvation is in their midst. As he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. One day, the bridegroom will go away for a time, but the bridegroom promises to return again. And Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. So my disciples are excluded from fasting, not because fasting is bad, but because I usher in a new covenant. And this new covenant is inaugurated by my presence, by my life, and ultimately I will consummate it. And at that point in time, when the new covenant is fully consummated, what will happen is I will no longer require fasting of the people. If you look at the picture of the New Testament uh, in, uh, of, the, of the kingdom of God in the book of Revelation, there's no hunger. There's no fasting. There's no weeping. There's no crying. There's no longing because the full worship and the full glory of God is in the presence of his people. And so he is going to make complete their longing. And so no more will they be required to fast. And Jesus is saying right now while I'm in their presence, they don't fast either because I'm fulfilling exactly what is being required. John Piper says the reason that people would fast today, for example, is because we fast and we hunger and we long for the thing we most worship. We fast and we hunger and we long for the thing which we most worship. So if the disciples most worship the practice of fasting, then they'll continue to fast even when Jesus is with them. But if they fast and they hunger and they long for Jesus and he's with them, they won't fast and they won't long for and they won't hunger. But as a New Testament church, because Jesus is now ascended into heaven, we are waiting for him to come back, which means we do practice fasting. We do regularly participate in the discipline of fasting, not because fasting is salvific, but because we practice fasting as a result and a response to longing for Christ to return again. It deadens our senses to this world and it alivens our spiritual hearts to eternity. Much of the deception of this modern world is comforting people to death. Because when we are fully in our pleasures, when we are fully in our comforts, we are very dead to the spiritual things of God. And so fasting is one way in which a Christian can recapture their senses and resensitize themselves to the actual longing of a future time. We are not right now where we want to be. We shouldn't pretend right now like we're where we want to be. And so we should regularly practice things that remind us of where we're going. We should regularly remind ourselves through the discipline of fasting, through the discipline of prayer, through a great many number of spiritual disciplines which we can attain these things. But fasting is one which Jesus numbers and which he addresses in this passage. But if you want Jesus' full picture of what it looks like, for we, us to not fast anymore. There's a, a text in John chapter 2 that where, he, where he will create an abundant wedding ceremony. He's, he's participating in the wedding. He's, he's there as an attendant in this wedding. And one of the first things that he does or one of the first miracles we see him do in that text is he creates a whole bunch of wine out of water. And one of the things that that illustrates to us is Jesus' desire to have a bountiful and glorious and celebratory wedding one day. He shows us his heart for the wedding feast and the wedding ceremony. And like many of you who've been at weddings before, if it's not your wedding, you might long for your wedding in the future one day. And Jesus might not have been any different from us in that when he's at this wedding, he might be thinking about his wedding one day that will be consummated. And so in response to what he wants that day to look like, he blesses this couple 
in all the splendor and the joy that they can experience. And he does that by giving them wine and giving them celebration and giving them not only wine, but good wine. And he gives them joy and abundance in that moment to consummate their marriage relationship. That's Jesus's view or his opinion on the celebration of the wedding. But he knows that right now is not the time for his wedding to be consummated. And so with restraint, he has his disciples not fast while he's with them, but you will see in the New Testament church, as soon as he leaves, they begin to fast. They begin to fast almost naturally because they're once again longing for God to be with them. Remember, the picture of the bride and the groom is a picture between Jesus and his church. That is who Jesus is going to purchase back to himself. And so the reason we fast is because we are also part of that era of longing. That's why we practice that discipline. It's not because we think that we're going to earn favor with God by fasting. We don't fast because we think somehow it makes us more holy than people who don't fast. We fast because it sobers our minds and our hearts to be sensitive to God. You might fast for a period of time out of response to be more sensitive to sin in your life. You might fast for a period of time to be more responsive to God or to dedicate a portion of your day, that meal that you would have eaten, towards memorizing the word. You might fast as part of a community effort of people where you're all longing for a common goal in mind. But those are all good reasons to fast. There's not one reason to fast, but there is one reason not to fast. Don't fast if you think that somehow by fasting you earn favor with God. That is absolutely excluded in this text of Scripture. So Jesus comes, according to his own testimony, and he brings a new covenant, one which does not require fasting because one day we will not need to do that anymore. The second thing he's going to answer in this text, he's going to do it through a series of three parables, is he's going to tell us what that new covenant looks like. And he tells us, first and foremost, that that new covenant requires a new garment. He says in verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. This illustration is one which carries with it very straightforward understanding. If you bought a new car, let's say, you bring home a new car, you have it, you have your old car sitting in the driveway, and you bring the new car and you notice your old car that you had sitting in the house has flat tires. And so what you do in your great and glorious wisdom is you take the tires off of your new car and you put it on the old car and then you drive around the old car. He's saying nobody does that. That is a foolish thing to do. And the reason I use that illustration is because it carries this kind of high connotation of how valuable a car is. And in those days, he's talking about how valuable a garment is. A garment for them is not like a garment for us. For us, we can just go to any store, we can buy clothing and it's it's no problem for us. But for them, they have maybe one, maybe two garments if they're rich. And so what he's saying is, if you buy a new garment and you have this old garment, what you wouldn't do is you wouldn't cut the thing that is valuable, the thing you just got, and put it on the thing that is old and broken and somehow try to bind these things together. That would be a distortion of reality. And he's saying no one does that. He says no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old. If he does, notice what he says, he will tear the new and the piece from the old will not match the old. He's saying if you try to do something like this, what you're going to end up doing is not sewing the old garment, you're going to end up destroying the new garment. He's saying you will destroy the garment that is new and you're going to try to put it on the old and it's not even going to match the old, it's going to look out of place. Now, what's he talking about with that new garment? 
Well, if you know the imagery and the metaphor of the text of Scripture, one of the big images is Christ covering us in His righteousness or clothing us in His righteousness. He talks, for example, in many places about clothing us with a garment of righteousness, a pure and white and spotless garment. And so what Jesus is saying is that what no one would do with a new garment is cut it and put it on an old. Similarly, what you shouldn't try to do with the new covenant that I'm bringing to you is cut apart the garment of righteousness and try to patch it onto your old worn out garment. Because if you do that, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to have this spot on this other garment that doesn't match. And the garment that I gave you, the new garment, is going to be destroyed. It's going to have a hole in it. And it's not going to look like it should. He's talking about our proclivity to take the righteousness that he gives us and sew it onto our old works. The old garment is the works that you and I produce. It's how God sees us in our natural state. And the new garment is you and I clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so if he gives you that righteousness, you put it on, and you don't try to sew it and, and stick it into the old garment. That would be a distortion of the gift. It would ruin the gift, and it wouldn't match. It would stick out like a sore thumb. If you want imagery for that in the Old Testament, Isaiah has that as well. So if you'll turn to Isaiah 61, you're going to see that text. It's going to be Isaiah 61 and verse 10. Look at the response of Isaiah longing for the year of the Lord's favor. He, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Notice the language that he's going to follow up with here. He says, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as the bride adorned herself with jewels. That is how God adorns his people with his righteousness. This garment is a garment of salvation. This righteousness is, as Luther would say, an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness not native to you and I. It's a righteousness that we can't fabricate. It's a righteousness that we can't imitate. It's a righteousness that is wholly other to us. And he gives it to us. We don't earn it. He gives it to us and he gives it to us and it's already complete. It's fully sewn. It's ready to be put on. What it's not to be done is to take this fully put together garment and cut out a piece of it and stick it onto your old garment. That would be a distortion of the truth. And that is what he's saying here. Don't Pharisees take your works based salvation and cut off the righteousness that I'm going to provide and stick those two things together. They won't match and you're going to destroy the gift that I'm giving you. This is the picture of the new covenant. If you want a New Testament picture of this, we referenced this text last week, but I would like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, interestingly enough, starts out with a parable of a wedding feast. You'll notice the language and the imagery in scripture is very consistent on this matter. And that's actually the parable that I want to look at, but we're not going to read all of it. The basic premise is there's a wedding feast, the guests don't show up, and so the person who's throwing the feast invites anyone who would want to partake in the feast to come join. And you get a great many people who come in and join, and then there's not enough, so they go out again and they invite more people. 
And verse 11 is the verse I want to focus on. Verse 11 says, But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw there was a man with no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he, being the man that's been interrogated, was speechless. And notice what the king says. The king says to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The imagery that is being portrayed by Jesus in this text is one that says, not only is there a wedding, not only is there a wedding that has abundance, but this wedding requires certain kinds of clothing to attend. And you can't sneak into this wedding because you were there when everyone else got invited if you're not going to put on the clothing of righteousness as well. This man has walked into this feast and everyone else who was around him walked in wearing clothes. You'll notice the king singles him out and sees he is the one not wearing a wedding garment. Meaning everyone else got the invitation, everyone else put on the garment that was offered and they go to attend the wedding. But this man thinks he's good to just get into the wedding because he was around everyone who was invited. What this is talking about is the kind of person who hears the gospel, who is around people who respond to that alien righteousness, and thinks that they are in by diffusion or by association. Notice what he says, they will be bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness. The righteousness is one that covers the sins of God's people, but the righteousness must be personally put on. If you don't personally put it on, it doesn't count for you. It doesn't matter how many of your friends, family, or coworkers put it on. It doesn't matter whether you feel that you associate with friends that put it on. What matters is if you personally put it on because he has discernment to see and to see and to explore and to judge. And he will do that without, uh, with, with no partiality. He's not going to let people off the hook. God tells us that he is a just judge and he is a discerning king. So that's what that parable is talking about. The man with no clothes is the person who tries to get in by association. And so let us not be like that man. Let us personally put on the garment that has been offered, the grace given, to God, given by God free of charge to all people. Put that on and don't make amendments to the righteousness. Don't try to put something on and, and make it a, a mixture of yours and God's as if somehow that's a possibility. Because remember what Jesus says at the beginning. He says no one, no one does that. In fact, no one can do that. But many have tried and many will continue to try. Look at the second piece of what the new covenant looks like. We've seen the new garment. Now look with me in the text and see the new spirit that is required. In verse 37 it says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the, old, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. This second and no one is in response to the fact that, okay, what if we didn't get the first picture? He's going to come at it with a second picture and with a beautiful understanding of what it looks like to have the new spirit within you. He's going to say, you can't take this new wine, this new spirit, and put it into an old wineskin. Now to explain this parable on the ground, remember I said we understand the garment, that we're pretty close to that one. We understand not fasting where the wedding guest is present. We get that one. We're not too far removed. This one, though, I think we might be far enough removed where I'll need to explain it. So verse 37 and verse uh, 38 are both built off of this illustration of how wine was made in the Old Testament. 
In that time period, what they would do is they would take the skins of animals and they would, they would shed the, the hair off of them. They would, they would tan the skin. They would cure it. And then what they would do is they would sew the skin together and they would put wine in it. They would cap it and they would let the wine ferment. You would put new wine in and you would allow it to ferment. And during the fermentation process, what happens is gas is produced. And so you need a new wine skin because the new skin is supple. It can expand as the wine is fermenting. And then once the wine is fermented, the skin actually, after a period of time, will become dry and very brittle. And so, you, once it's an old wine skin, you can't put new wine in it and then repeat the process again because the skin won't be able to stretch anymore. It's going to break. And so what he's telling his audience is, you wouldn't put new wine into an old wine skin because what's going to happen is when the new wine goes in and it begins that fermentation process, it's going to rip the old wine skin apart. And then notice in verse 38, or sorry, in verse 37, it says, and it will be spilled on the ground and the skins will be destroyed. So it's a bad outcome, not only for the wine, but also for the skins involved in that situation. Very similar to the imagery of the garment where the old one is destroyed because it doesn't match and the new one is destroyed because it now has a hole in it. In verse 37, it's talking about what it looks like to have the new spirit of the new covenant put inside of you. That new spirit is poured out onto all the people who partake in the new covenant, but... You can't put that new spirit into an old vessel. You can't put that new spirit into a natural man because what happens is the natural man can't contain the new spirit. The new spirit goes into the man and as he works his salvation work, as he works his righteousness, what will happen eventually is that man will be destroyed. They will be ripped apart like the wineskin because they don't have the elasticity to deal with the change. The new spirit is promised for all who are in the new covenant. And so if you want the new spirit, there needs to be a new wineskin in order to receive the new spirit. If you want a cross-reference for why the new spirit is required or where that language comes from, there's Old Testament places, but I'd like to turn to something I read this week in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 8, you get this language of the new spirit. It's going to be Hebrews chapter 8 and in verse 8 of that text. Jesus is uh, referring to the new covenant which he comes to inaugurate. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And the author of Hebrews will parenthetically comment and say, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the new wine going into new wineskins. He's saying if there is a new covenant being curated, there's a new spirit being put on their hearts. There's laws, there's commandments with this new covenant, but the new covenant requires a new spirit or else you won't be able to obey its commandments and you will be broken by the yoke that you would put upon yourself. The new covenant requires 
the new spirit. And no one is part of the new covenant unless they have the spirit of God inside of them, which is making them new and creating a desire to be obedient to God. Notice as part of that new covenant, Jesus says, or the author of Hebrews says, that he's not going to write their laws on tablets of stone. He's not going to put them in scriptures or put them into memory. He's going to write those laws into their minds and he's going to write them on their hearts, which is a Jewish expression for saying he's going to put it in their wills to obey his law. He's going to put it within their desires to be obedient. And he's going to cause it to happen, not by some magical force or not by their obedience, but by his spirit, he's going to cause it to occur. And this is not the author of Hebrews alone. Paul actually says this in Romans uh, chapter 8, I believe. Yes, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, it's uh, starting in verse 7. He talks about how it's not only the spiritual, uh, that the spirit is required for the obedience, but he actually says it's exclusively the work of the spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The new covenant requires the new Spirit. And the new spirit is an essential component of the sanctifying work of God in the new believers. This is the wide testimony of scripture. That alien righteousness that God gives us is how he views us. But he eventually, through his spirit, puts that righteousness not only in theory or idea, but in practice into the life of a believer. It is an alien righteousness, but it is worked out with fear and trembling through the spirit by God's grace in each and every believer's life. James would say that faith that has no works is a faith that doesn't save because it is no faith at all. Faith that is salvific has the component of manifest works to be real. And so it is with Paul here in Romans 8. He says that it is not that the Spirit is put on you and then the Spirit just keeps you as you were. The Spirit is put in you so that you can have life in the new covenant of God. That is why he gives you his Spirit. And this is part of the new covenant. So we have the new garment and we have the new spirit. But then I want to see the the last piece of that covenant, which is the new creation that is required. It says in verse 38, it's not that new wine can't just be put into old wineskins, but new wine, it says in verse 38, must be put into fresh wineskins. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one, after drinking the old wine, desires the new. For he says, the old is good. If you were to dive into a study of the grammar there, the old is good is a very soft way of saying the old is good enough. The old is something I'm willing to settle for. What this person is saying, reflecting on drinking the new wine or having the option to, is they're saying, no, I don't desire that. I don't need that. I've got what I need in the old wine. That's a person who fundamentally rejects their need for the new covenant. 
Verse 38, though, is what I want to dwell on to, to frame that. It says the new covenant requires a new creation. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Jesus teaches that first and foremost here in this parable, but in the rest of the New Testament, this is attested to. Paul would say it this way. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, that means if anyone identifies with Christ, has his spirit in them, they're not an old creation with a spirit in them. That's an old wineskin with new wine in it. It will burst. He's saying if anyone is in Christ, he himself is a new creation. They've been created new for the purpose of being able to have the spirit of God dwell in them and make them a life-giving part of the body. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That is a mark of a believer that you are being made new by the spirit of God. Paul would say it this way. He, he lives out his new creation reality in Philippians chapter three. He says, you know, when I was born, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. I was the guy, but I cast off the old and I identify not with those old things, but with Christ and him exclusively. I don't, I don't count all of, these any, all of these other things as part of my righteousness. I'm a new creation, meaning that old stuff doesn't count for me. Only Christ's righteousness and this creation that he's working out in my heart after conversion is what counts. That's it. That's the only thing that matters for Paul is being a new creation. All believers who are in Christ are being made new. They are already fundamentally new creations, which means when you are saved, you aren't saved and then you continue on in your dead life as you did before. He puts a new taste and a new desire in your mouth to want his stuff. He has commands. He has laws. And I'm not saying you're going to get all of them immediately. Remember, you're going to be made new over time. But what I am saying is that you're not going to be like the person in verse 39 that says the old is good. That old stuff I was willing to settle for, that was good enough. I'm happy with that. No, he's going to put a new kind of taste in your mouth in which you desire the stuff that he offers. You desire the new covenant. You desire to obey God. You desire to be pleasing to him. The things of this world are not things you desire anymore. And that is something that is on a sliding scale. If you're growing in favor with the world and the things of the world, you are not burning in affection for God. Those both can't be happening simultaneously. If you are growing in affection for God, the things of this world are becoming dead to you over time. And to go back to what we were talking about earlier, that's part of why we fast. Because we know that food is of some value, but the spiritual things are of much value in many ways. So as much as we can, we're going to be sensitive to those things as a first priority. By the way, this phrase of the oldest good is actually something that is predicted in Jeremiah by prophecy. Jeremiah says that uh, in chapter 6 of his, his prophecy that he, God is going to actually offer salvation to the Israelites. He's going to create a way for them. He's going to make a way for them to be able to be obedient to him. And then a great many of them are going to look and say, nope, not going to go that way. That's something he prophesies hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. And here Jesus is with the same kind of teaching. And what this is going to teach us, and this is really the first time we bump into this in Luke's gospel, is the first time we're going to see the reality of some people not responding. Some people haven't responded temporarily. And there's been kind of a door open that maybe at some point down the line they might respond. But for the first time, we're going to see someone intentionally hardening their desires against what is being offered. This person, it doesn't matter how many times you offer them new wine, they're going to say, not, not that I don't want the new wine this time, they're going to say, the old wine is what, ha what makes me happy. The old wine is the thing that I want. And so I'm not going to even desire to have the new wine. 
Jesus is creating the reality that there are many who won't respond to him. Unfortunately, many of those are Israelites. But there is a great many people, as we know, as the gospel goes forth in Acts, people who hate the gospel. People who hate the reality of the fact that they can't create righteousness in themselves. People who will say things like, why would Jesus have given us the law if he didn't expect us to be able to obey it? The reason Jesus gave us the law is so we could be aware of exactly how little we could obey it. So that when his, salva- when his Savior comes, when it comes through Jesus in the person, we see, yep, that's what I need. We don't see that as an affront to our works. We see that as the solution to the fact that we don't have works. Christians are saved by works, but not ours. We're saved by the works of Jesus that he does in perfect obedience to the Father. He's the only person who's ever come in all of human history and obeyed the law. He's the only person who's come and made a way for fallen humanity to be reconciled with God. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. And that's not Buddha. That's not Muhammad. That's not the Pope. That is Christ Jesus, who is the mediator between God and man. There's no other mediator. If you're looking for anyone else to absolve you of your sins, you are straight out of luck. There's only one person who has the ear of the Father, and it is his Son who is beloved and has a special place at his side. If he's not interceding for you, it doesn't matter who is. If you're known by him, though, it doesn't matter who rejects you. Because to be known by him is to be known ultimately by God himself. And there's another reality that's at play here, which is that Jesus says uh, in elsewhere in, in the Gospels, he says that, Not only is there a way to be saved, but as we just mentioned, there's only one of those ways to be saved. And he'll say it another way. He'll say it, uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father without me. That's the way. That no one is the same way he says here, no one tears a piece. No one puts new wine. No one after drinking. No one would do something like that. It's not possible. It's not possible to go to God apart from Jesus Christ. It's not possible to take a new piece of clothing and sew it onto an old garment. It's not possible to put new wine into old wineskins because to do so is a fundamental denial of the reality that's at stake. If there was any other way to be saved, God would have been a foolish God to send Jesus to die the horrific death that he died. If there was only one way, though, to be saved, and that was the way, thanks be to God that he sends Jesus as our propitiation. That is the only way that we can be saved, and it is right that we defend that truth. It is right that when we go out and evangelize, we tell people the reality that Jesus is the only way to God. There's not a million ways to God. There's not favor that somehow earns our place with God. It's not believe God and then also do better. It's believe God full stop. No works, no righteousness, no putting on something onto the gospel. And this isn't, by the way, a New Testament church problem exclusively. This is our problem. Our problem is the fact that when Paul says, O foolish Galatians, are you so quickly deserting of the gospel which I delivered to you, that he wrote that, yes to them, but prolifically to us. Because we are so quickly deserting of the gospel of God. We are so quick to say, well, we fast, but we fast because God likes me more when I do it. Or I study the scriptures because I know the more I memorize, the better God likes me. The righteousness is not something we sow into our lives. It's something we take apart from our lives and put on ourselves. Now, we live in obedience to the new creation, but we are not ourselves righteous in any way by our own works. We are only righteous by the works of Jesus Christ. And this whole text sums up for us a section in Luke's gospel that begins to illustrate to us the reality of the conflict 
and the response that Jesus engages with in his ministry. You'll see that as he reveals himself, first and foremost to the disciples, that they respond and they follow him. But there's another group that's going on in this gospel at the same time that sees Jesus and fundamentally denies his reality. And that group was introduced to us early in Luke's gospel, but now we're going to see the conflict begin to continue to rise. And that's not a conflict that's going to stay in the shadows. That conflict is going to become front and center to the life and the ministry of Jesus. Eventually, we're going to see that that conflict is actually the epicenter around all the, rich, all the rest of the stories in Luke's gospel are told. And that conflict is a conflict that says, well, Jesus, you come offering one thing, and we believe this other thing. And we don't like the fact that you can't tell us to believe what we believe. And that's actually the same thing that you and I have to address in our lives. Some of us have grown up in church for our entire lives, taught one thing. And then you read the Bible, or someone shares the gospel with you, and all of a sudden, you have to decide whether you want to believe Jesus and how he reveals himself, or you want to believe the traditions that you were taught growing up. And you have to make that call. And Luke's gospel gives us that fundamental conflict throughout the whole thing. And if you're concerned about that or you're curious about that, if you keep reading Luke's gospel, I promise you, the Jesus who you discover is the Jesus worth believing. He is the Messiah, he is the Savior, and he is the Lord, who came once and for all to make sinners right with the Holy God, and to do so apart from anything within any of us. And that's not bad news, that's good news, because there's nothing good within any of us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your graciousness to us. Lord, we thank you that the way in which you felt was most glorious to you was a way which involved redeeming a fallen people to yourself. God, we are admittedly so quick to forget you. We are admittedly such a quick people to desert the things we have been taught and to pursue foolish myths and foolish righteousness as if somehow those were of substance. Lord, I pray that as your spirit works to renew our hearts, that it would do so quickly. Lord, would you quicken our hearts and aliven them to you? Would you make us sensitive to your spirit? Would you give us new desires and put them on our hearts? And Lord, I pray that if we don't know you, that you would not allow us to exist in a category of self-deceived people. Lord, if there's any of us who doesn't know you, I pray that you would make it abundantly clear to us so that we could know how far away we are and how desperately we do need you. Lord, please don't let us exist like Pharisees who think that they have a righteousness. Please, Lord, don't let us do that. God, I thank you for the grace that you have given us. I thank you that you have made a way to be right with you. Lord, I pray that you would allow us graciously to continue in our worship tonight, not with our old sins in mind, but with a new covenant in front of us and a new grace offered to us. Lord, let us be reminded of that truth so that we can worship not in response to who we are, but in response to who you are. Lord, we ask and we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.